listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The U.S. targets Russia's inner circle with sanctions, but one oligarch slips through the crack. All but one U.S. bank passes the Fed's latest stress test, and Alibaba invests $215 million U.S. million in Tango, a U.S.-based instant messaging service. In our featured segments this morning, we'll take a look at the deflating renminbi, dwindling faith in Japan's financial health, and corruption concerns on the awarding of the 2022 World Cup to Cotter. Joining us in our studios, Andrew Kosser from DZ Bank. We'll also be speaking with Richard Jerram from the Bank of Singapore on the phone and Danny Hicks from Sports Direct at AFP will join us as well. But first, this little tease of the show. I signed a new executive order today that gives us the authority to impose sanctions not just on individuals but on key sectors of the Russian economy. President Obama has taken another shot at Russian President Vladimir Putin. The United States has leveled further sanctions on Russian officials and businessmen. We've been working closely with our European partners to develop more severe actions that could be taken if Russia continues to escalate the situation. As part of that process, uh, I signed a new executive order today that gives us the authority to impose sanctions not just on individuals but on key sectors of the Russian economy. This is not our preferred outcome. However, Russia must know that further escalation will only isolate it further from the international community. Shortly after the announcement, Russia announced sanctions against U.S. officials and politicians. Some of the most senior congressmen, Harry Reid, John Boehner, and John McCain, were on the list and have been slipped with a visa ban. And so has one of President Obama's national security advisors. The BBC's Richard Galpin reports from Moscow. There were uh, four attackers, four terrorists. According to information, they were underage and um, they wanted to get in and they have said to the guards that we would like to have uh, dinner here. But they started later on the attack. They had uh, small pistols. And they carried- yeah, that's the wrong report that came up out of order. We'll sort that for you a bit later. The one oil man that I mentioned uh, who had slipped through the crack, Gennady Timchenko from the Gunvor Group, managed to uh, sell his share before the move, Gunver is one of the world's largest commodity traders. It employs more than 1,600 people. Mr. Timchenko was reported to have transferred his shares to his partner, fellow billionaire Torbjorn Tornquist. On Wall Street, stocks rose for the third time this week on better economic data. Reports on leading indicators and regional manufacturing lifted optimism. And here in Asia, in Australia, the ASX 200 is up a third of a percent and, and shares in, in Seoul are up more than half of a percent. The dollar is trading at 102.4 Japanese yen and the euro is now at $1.37 U.S. The S&P 500 was up 0.6% overnight at 1872. The Dow was up 108 at 16,331. But Yale professor Robert Schiller says that home sales have weakened in the United States. Existing home sales have been declining on a seasonally adjusted basis for some months now. So it's not just the weather or the winter season. Something is going on. But he is not predicting a bad outcome. 
It's kind of an ambiguous situation. I, I would imagine that nothing really dramatic is going to happen. We'll see only modest, uh, more modest. We had huge price increases over the last year nationally. It was up 13.4% in the last 12 months. But Bob, I'm imagining that will moderate. Professor Schiller was asked about the phenomenon of investors buying rather than first-time homebuyers. In some ways it's troublesome, in other ways it's not. One thing is that Americans seem to be more interested in renting now. And so there's a natural business of, of converting to rental, and that's part of what investors are doing. It's a healthy sign, but it's not a particularly encouraging sign if people want to rent. It's not encouraging for detached single-family home prices because detached single-family homes don't convert easily to rentals. Meantime, the Federal Reserve says 29 out of 30 banks have passed a special stress test. It means the banks have enough capital buffers to withstand a drastic slowdown. All the big banks except for Zions Bank Corp. stayed above the 5% requirement for top-tier capital. Frank Keating is president of the American Bankers Association. Well, I think it's very good news uh, for the American borrower. Obviously, it's very good news for banks. Remember, in the last five years, the American banks have doubled their capital. This was an extreme te uh, stress test. It would be as if you and I were on, on treadmills at 70%. We're literally going up the Matterhorn. And 29 of the 30, first time all 30 of the largest banks and regional banks were measured. 29 of the 30 uh, passed. There was one that I think needs to apparently take a look at uh, uh, some uh, features, but that will be resolved. I think it's, it is very good news to have such uh, very substantial capital levels in the American uh, banking system. The test aimed to show how banks would weather a financial collapse similar to the crisis that hit in 2007 to 2009. Alibaba is leading a $280 million investment in Tango Me. The investment gives Alibaba a U.S.-based holding in the instant messaging market. The financing values Tango, which is a California company, at $1 to $2 billion. Tango has 200 million users, and Alibaba is pumping at least 250 15 million in uh, into this round of, of finance raising uh, by Tango of 280 million. Nike shares were down 3.7% in after hours trading after it reported earnings. The shoemaker said that it expects foreign exchange headwinds to drag on earnings growth this year. Earlier it had reported earnings of 76 cents a share. That was a lot better than the 72 cents expected by analysts. On the jobs front, Chris Rupke at Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi says he expects a big rebound in job hiring this spring. It's been a while, but it looks like the labor market is setting up for a big rebound in the spring. And this is from an above expectations 175,000 gain in payroll jobs for February. Right now, unemployment claims are back in the full employment zone of 300 to 325,000 where layoffs are modest, frictional ones that are normal in an expanding $17 trillion economy that has long ago left recession and continues to climb as in moving steadily forward. The outlook is good. He ticks off the recent claims reports. The last three weeks, 324,000 March 1, 315,000 March 8, and 320,000 reported today for March 15. Three in a row. Ring the bell. 
Ring the bell. That's Chris getting excited. Uh, you can imagine a call to the wife. Honey, I'm coming home early. Open a bottle of wine and put on that red lingerie. <laughs> Just a nice little segue into Andrew Cosser, Chief Market Strategist for Capital Markets Asia at DZ Bank. Um, Andrew's a pretty serious man. Uh, Andrew, good morning. Good morning to you. <laughs> I'm going to try to get you smiling a little bit. Um, okay, so we've got to talk about uh, the uh, China currency weakening. The renminbi uh, above the 620 level to the U.S. dollar yesterday. Analysts uh, have said that that's kind of an important level, might be a trigger for margin calls that could force a further unwind. Uh, what do you make of this, the weakening of the renminbi? Is it serious or might it be a buying opportunity? So far, the weakening has been about 3% from the lows that we saw in January. And 3% in the currency markets is not a huge amount. But the fact that the People's Bank of China has allowed the renminbi to weaken to this extent is a clear signal on its part that the old expectation that the renminbi would always be getting stronger and stronger and stronger, that no longer holds. So market participants have to accept that the market can go up and it can go down within certain limits. And I don't I guess, think they want to push it to the stage where there's instability in the renminbi market, though. Yeah, it's almost hard to call it a market, isn't it? I mean, the way that they manage it. They just do what they want with it. Indeed. But uh, more and more investors are looking at the renminbi as a currency and at renminbi-denominated products. So it is developing as a market. Yeah, I guess it's a key currency because China does so much trade with uh, partners around the world. So And people want to own it because the economy has been growing pretty fast, so the currency should strengthen. And, you know, it's been a one-way bet. So now, as you say, it's no longer a one-way bet. Is one byproduct also that it'll slow down the hot money inflows, and that may reduce the shadow banking industry? That will definitely help, yes. And how does that work? Explain how that happens. When people try to export money from uh, China, one of the ways they can do it is through investing in trust products which find their way out, for example, through property in Hong Kong. So if the renminbi isn't as strong as it was, then people don't have the incentive uh, or it costs them more to move the money overseas. So they're more likely to keep it at home deprive the, uh, the shadow sector of money. So do you have some loose targets on where the RMB goes uh, for all of this year, 2014? Off the top of my head, I'd say we'll probably be looking at uh, more of a, a gradual climb towards the 625 mark, a modest depreciation, but uh, the, the People's Bank of China will move it as it wants to. Yes. Um, as you look at foreign exchange generally, so keeping the RMB in mind, uh, what, what excites you the most right now? I mean, it seems like we're in for a lot of currency volatility and instability. I mean, we just had Nike's results. They, the reason that the shares fell after hours, I mean, it was a great report, 76 cents versus 72. But then in the call, they said, well, you know, we expect earnings to go down because of, uh, of exchange rate volatility. Exchange rate volatility is something that weighs on most businesses, particularly in the globalised world that we live in today. And you can only look at the euro over the last nine months against the US dollar, and it's climbed from about 128 to 138 today. That's a pretty big move for the eurozone, which is a major exporter, and its exports have become more expensive, which in a economy that's growing very slowly is not very constructive when you want to try and boost exports to get growth to pick up. 
So Eurozone is going to be probably struggling a little bit, and the euro will probably remain pretty firm, staying above 134, 135 for the rest of the year. So back to the renminbi for a moment. Uh, if, as you say, uh, it's temporary and it's not too sharp in terms of the adjustment, uh, would this maybe be a good time to buy renminbi bonds then? Because if the currency gets a little weaker, the bonds will be a little cheaper. But then as the currency turns around ultimately and appreciates, that could be a good story. I think that could be a good story indeed. And uh, it's one that I should be looking at in a little bit more detail for my customers in the course of the next week or two. Okay. Um, anything else that um, has caught your attention, uh, is, uh, particularly in terms of overall strategy, maybe as it relates to currency, but overall strategy for local companies here, Hong Kong companies, uh, anything to look out for? I think the decline in the Hong Kong equity market and China equity market has perhaps gone a little bit too far, mm. considering just how solidly underpinned uh, particularly the Hong Kong market is in terms of the, the business model here. It just seems amazing, doesn't it, that you know, you've got eight shares in a bear market. You've got the Hang Seng Index down um, really sharply over the past uh, couple of years from 24,000 down to 21 and change now, uh, 21,182. It does seem extraordinary that, particularly with Hong Kong, uh, is it because we're so weighed down by the, by the China listings in the Hang Seng Index now? The perception is that Hong Kong and China are very much tied together, and sometimes it works for the good and sometimes not quite so good. You wonder, I think Morgan Stanley put out a report recently saying that China could be nearing a Minsky moment, which um, is where uh, basically you go from the level of debt, the level of, uh, of financing uh, being healthy and good for the market, tips over into kind of speculative and Ponzi finance, and that it starts to work against the economy. Do you share that view? I haven't looked at that in great detail, so I'll generally say that I think the Chinese economy is still growing fast enough and the regulatory authorities there are on the case. So at the moment, I'm not worried that about China starting to look at like an ugly proposition like some of the so-called Fragile Five emerging markets. So not worried about a, a possible big blow-up, and that might be what keeps the uh, equity markets down so low. I'm not concerned about that at the time being, no. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us here on the program. Uh, it's a pleasure, and we will talk again. Andrew Kosser, Chief Market Strategist, Capital Markets Asia for DZ Bank. didn't I tell you about? I didn't tell you about gold prices, $1,331 uh, a troy ounce now. Oil prices, $106.45. As we mentioned, equity markets a uh, little bit buoyant in Asia this morning. We don't have the Nikkei. I suppose Japan is closed for national holiday today. Uh, we'll get further details on some of the other metrics that we follow for you. Uh, for instance, the latest rate for the renminbi, 6.146. But uh, the market has been allowed to, or that uh, the renminbi has been allowed to fluctuate up to 2%. So that's why we said yesterday we saw it uh, under 6.20 for a bit of the morning. 
Well, is Abenomics working? While it might be a little bit early, uh, too early perhaps to say, concerns are growing about the nation's worsening finances. Japanese brokerage Nomura also even went so far this week as to warn investors to consider buying derivatives that protect against losses on corporate bonds. And we asked Richard Jerram from the Bank of Singapore to join us. He's the chief economist there, and he joins us now on the line. Richard, good morning. So that basic question, is Abenomics working? What do you think? Uh, well, I guess like a lot of these questions, the answer is uh, yes and no. I mean, it's clearly working on the monetary front. Uh, they've put in a sensible guy to run the central bank, really for the first time in, in decades. And uh, he's taken an aggressive approach to monetary policy. You can see the yen has weakened, and that's really helped uh, to drive corporate profits up and to, to drive some recovery. I think if you look uh, outside that, it's actually fairly difficult to find much evidence of progress and you know he's been there for more than a year now as, as prime minister and actually the achievements in a sort of structural or growth oriented uh, deregulation are fairly difficult to find yes the restructuring that people had hoped for uh, doesn't appear to have happened uh, at least at great pace and it also appears that japanese companies uh, rather than lowering prices uh, uh, to um, you know to take advantage of uh, the adjustment in the currency that um, you know they've basically not done so yeah that's right they've uh, essentially taken on the profit margin and i think you can see uh, the consequence of that that profits have uh, basically gone vertical. They've gone through the roof. And the, the performance you saw in the equity market last year you know, it wasn't a function of a sort of forward-looking optimism of people re-rating the shares. It was purely a function of the profits that they were delivering. So I think the market's actually being quite, uh, maybe quite cynical, you'd say, about this, that they seem to be uh, paying uh, actually for what they're getting in terms of profits, but they're not really putting a lot of faith in the promise of a, a change in the, the medium-term growth trajectory. And that has made the Nikkei one of the worst performers, actually, uh, uh, year-to-date now. I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but off the top of my head, I think it's down about 10%, which is means it's almost being treated like a, a lot of emerging markets uh, down that amount when you have at least the S&P and the Dow relatively flat. Yeah, I think that's one of the frustrations, that the Japanese market still seems to almost behave a bit like an emerging market, that you don't have a, a wide range of participants, and when the foreigners are buying it, it goes up fast, and when the foreigners want to liquidate their positions, it goes down fast, and so that's very much a feature of the emerging market. So, of course, one of the objectives, if you like, of, uh, of Abenomics is to try to encourage uh, domestic savers to do something with their money other than just stick it in the bank. Of course, when you have a deflating economy, you put it in the bank and you earn nothing, and that's sort of acceptable because everything's getting cheaper. But if you can convince people there's going to be some inflation, then you're going to force people to uh, move into risk assets. And uh, I think the fact that they haven't really moved into their domestic equity market for uh, you know, so far uh, suggests that they haven't really had a, a mindset change uh, as a result of the, uh, the Abenomics program. It does seem the housing market has picked up a little bit, though. Yeah, housing is looking a little better. Land prices uh, seem to be stabilizing, rising in a few areas. I mean, there's clearly an economic recovery taking place, so you'd expect uh, to see that type of a uh, change in, in a cyclical sense. I think the real question is whether there's anything uh, very structural going on or not, and I, I think on that front we're fairly skeptical. 
It seems that uh, if we go back to equity prices, because this show, uh, you know, actually targets a lot of investors in town, uh, maybe the problems or perceived problems in China are weighing down Korea and Japan and other uh, countries in the neighborhood. Um, do you take a view on that? Yeah, I don't think that perceived problems in China. I think China's got a massive problem in terms of the, uh, the, the misinvestment of the past four or five years in the credit bubble that has funded that misinvestment. And so I think uh, it's fairly natural for the uh, proximate countries. Uh, typically, they've, they've got four, five, six percent of their, their economy is dependent on uh, final demand inside China. So you can understand there's going to be a lot of nervousness uh, because the, uh, the economic conditions in China seem to be deteriorating. Uh, there's some signs that the credit bubble uh, is becoming uh, rather unstable. And so I think you'd have to worry about the sensitivity of any of the uh, regional companies that either have assets in China or have uh, exports into the, the, the domestic market in China. I don't know if you were on the phone when I brought up this Morgan Stanley report and this concept of a Minsky moment uh, arriving in China. I don't know if you read that report, but it sounds like you think that we are getting close to some sort of turning point, that maybe the um, the debt bubble is just too big and it is going to deflate. Yeah, I was hearing your comments. I think the uh, the signs are quite worrying. I mean, if you go through through economic history, the majority of emerging markets that see this type of credit expansion have a financial system crisis. So I think that should be your base case expectation for China. I think the reassurance probably is that uh, the government has a lot of financial resources. Government finances are quite healthy. So they probably can write a check uh, and fix it as they did 15 years ago. What about um, our What about our um, close involvement here in Hong Kong? Because a lot of people talk about it, uh, you know, it's a domestic story and the government, central government's got a lot of money. What about us? Do we get taken down? Uh, you'd have to think so because you'd have thought that the flows into the uh, local property market, for example, are going to be smashed uh, when you have a, a, a reasonable... Uh, okay. Sort of reconciliation of the, the, the problems in the uh, in the financial system. Okay, you're getting too scary now. I'm going to have to let you go. <laughs> no, just joking. Time's up. But um, this is a discussion that we will have uh, in future. So um, you know, hope to have you back. Thanks, R- Richard Jerram, there, Bank of Singapore's chief economist, joining us uh, on the line. <laughs> He was getting kind of scary, though, talking about, uh, you know, this sort of crash that's going to take us down into uh, scary areas here in Hong Kong. Anyway, let's uh, let's now go to um, a slightly more um, lighthearted. Uh, well, perhaps not so. Can FIFA possibly pull out of of Qatar? We're joined by Danny Hicks, editor of Sports Direct at AFP. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Brian. So, yes, you've got the FBI involved. Mm. Um, just a lot of murky business now about yeah, uh, new revelations just this week. Funny Financial implications. Yeah. Um, just tell our audience basically what, what those um, leaks are. Well, just going back 2010, Qatar was, to everyone's surprise in the world of sport and football, awarded the World Cup, uh, a country that's never qualified for the World Cup before. And ever since then, there seems to be a, a raft of allegations and... and uh, evidence of collusion and corruption going on. And the latest this week, a Daily Telegraph investigation has revealed that uh, payments were made from uh, Mohammed bin Hammam, who is the dis- now disgraced uh, chief of the Qatar World Cup bid and former head of Asian football, who's been bad for football for life 
for bribery, to Jack Walker, another prominent member of the FIFA Executive Committee who had a vote in giving Qatar the World Cup. And these payments, uh, amounting to millions of dollars, were made uh, just a couple of weeks after Qatar won the bid. And... Uh, Frankly, it all stinks. So is it possible that FIFA could pull out, or has it gone too far, too much water under the bridge? Uh, Time-wise, it's not impossible. Uh, This was a a kind of double World Cup bid, the first time they've done two, the 2018 and 2022. Normally these things are decided, uh, and same for Olympics, about seven years before uh, the tournament is due to be hosted. So on that timescale, they could still pull out by 2015, run a bid process again, and still have someone in place to run the 2022 or World could, Cup. Or could they go to who finished second? Or would that not be... Uh... Uh, I think if the whole voting process is found to be uh, some some sort yeah, of rigging point. going on, then how can you uh, then... Uh, you'd, you'd have to run the thing again. But... The financial implications of pulling out at this stage would be huge for FIFA. I mean, Qatar has already embarked on massive capital building projects, building stadiums. In, in fact, the, the, the city that's to, due to host the final, Lusail, is, uh, didn't exist at the time of the bid and is being built as we speak. It's a whole new city being built on, in this tiny Gulf state. And, uh, you know, they're talking about $220 billion that Qatar is spending, uh, which it can afford, mind you. It's got a, got a sovereign wealth fund of about a trillion dollars sitting in the bank so uh, it can afford but uh, whether it uh, would uh, take too kindly for this all to be taken away and to be left with a a load of white elephants would would be a different matter and you could see it going through uh, international uh, courts and and so on but uh, so so what do you think is the most likely outcome given that backdrop well i think what fifa has to do uh, and they're doing something at the moment. There's a guy called Michael Garcia who's a lawyer and is a, 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 an investigator for the FIFA Ethics Committee who is interviewing all the members of the Executive Committee who made the decision at the moment. The Executive Committee is meeting later today in Geneva to consider his findings and to see if there was any uh, uh, wrongdoing. Uh, FIFA has maintained all along that the voting system was, was, was good and proper, but uh, there is no transparency. Nobody knows. They don't reveal who voted for whom. Uh, six of the 24 ex-co members uh, 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 have uh, gone in disgrace since then and six of the remaining uh, ex-co members of the 12 that remain from that bidding process are under a cloud for things such as bribery and corruption in football as well. So uh, <laughs> uh, it, it really needs FIFA to, I think, they need to launch some sort of in- independent investigation, get it all out in the open, exactly what happened, and then make a decision from there. Until they do, these allegations will will uh, continue to swirl and this World Cup, if it ever takes place in Qatar in 22, and that's without all the controversy over holding it in winter rather than summer, and hundreds of construction workers supposedly have died on the project so far, and so on and so on. So you say that this investigation you know, done by Michael Garcia may not be seen uh, as as very um, uh, independent well, since he's, he he's is, part of FIFA, right? He uh, is part of FIFA and he's in, appointed by the FIFA Ethics Committee. I think it needs someone independent. I think it needs some sort of independent body, maybe the Court of Arbitration for Sport or something like that to look into this whole uh, uh, bid process and and see what went on. And until that transparency and we actually know what went on, uh, I I don't think anybody can make a decision. But FIFA will be very, very very reluctant to to pull out. But there is a weight of uh, opinion. Uh, MPs in in the UK have come out this week and called for Qatar to be stripped of the the tournament. And and while this uh, kind of... uh, this cloud hangs over the tournament, um, it's not good for anyone. 
and the fact is they still have time. You know, there are plenty of countries who could host a World Cup at, you know, five minutes' notice, England being one of them, yeah. uh, many countries in Europe. Okay, so we there's get, a long way to go. we got to go. Thanks, Danny. Danny Hicks, AFP. Weather today, cool and cloudy. Just a few rain patches expected. Maximum temperature, only 18 degrees. Time is 8.31. The latest news now with Samantha Butler. President Obama has announced sanctions against some of the richest men in Russia over its annexation of Crimea. The U.S. has targeted 20 individuals close to President Putin. Moscow retaliated by imposing entry bans on nine senior American officials. European leaders meeting in Brussels have also agreed to add another 12 names to the list of Russian individuals subject to sanctions from the EU. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel said via a translator that they'd ask the European Commission to consider broader measures if the situation escalates. We have said time and again and reiterated this also today that uh, we consider the integrity of the territory of Ukraine to be absolutely essential and uh, we would like to ask the Commission to review restrictive measures um, of a uh, financial nature and of a trade nature as regards Crimea. Aircraft and ships from 